we are talking about how God does great things in the desert places of the Bible. And the desert, we talked about last week, represents, uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, many great things happen in the desert places, but the desert place, both biblically and mystically, it represents this place that we go to to find healing, a place that we go to to be prepared. It's a place of preparation and, and testing. We spend the majority of our lives in the desert. Some of you who grew up here in Afraid, you literally have spent the majority of your life in the desert. Following Jesus is a lifelong journey of preparation. We spend most of our life in this journey of preparation. And we will not all arrive at a place of completion until Jesus returns. He promises that when he comes again, he's going to rid the world of all sickness and all sin, all disease forever. But until that day, God uses our lifetime to prepare our hearts for the moment when he calls us. And he, he says our name and he invites us into something else. And we embrace the desert places because when your life is surrendered to God, there isn't any part of your life. There isn't any season of your life that goes to waste. How many of you have mistakes in the past and you feel like you don't have to raise your hand, but you feel like I wasted a great portion of my life pursuing this or doing this or hanging out with these people or, or being in this relationship. I wasted a big chunk of my life. I'm here to tell you that if your life is surrendered to Jesus, not a single moment of your life goes to waste, that God redeems our past. He redeems our mistakes, and he uses our mistakes to shape us into who he wants us to become. But your life has to be surrendered to the person of Jesus. Nothing of our life goes to waste. You know, when I was uh, single and looking to mingle, I, uh, I felt as though I was in a desert season of, of my life, and my thought was that things would fall into place once I got married. Things would just come into place once I got, I'd be, for, I'd be more financially stable, right? I'd have a second, second income, right? We'd be more financially stable. I'd have a partner for life, that I, and I wouldn't feel lonely anymore. I wouldn't have filthy roommates anymore. And those issues were resolved when I got married, but my wife, she got a filthy roommate after we got married. But after we got married, I got new issues, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a long-term career. I discovered through marriage that I wasn't as stellar of a person that I thought I was. Marriage tends to do that to some of us, doesn't it? It shows us who we are at our worst moments in life. It reveals your flaws. And over the years that we've been married, we've learned new communication skills. I found purpose in being in the ministry and in being a worship pastor at my old church, but then after a few years, new issues started to surface. They started to surface again. I realized that I have, a, I have a tendency to distance myself from deep and meaningful relationships. That even though I'm an outgoing person, even though I like to say I have lots of friends, when it comes to getting really close to somebody, I, I do have a tendency to distance myself, to protect myself. I, I started feeling like I was hidden in ministry, like nobody saw my true potential or my value, and I had pride. I started noticing these things about me that I don't like in my life. And see, here's the point. As humans, we tend to think, our, our natural tendency is to believe that life is going to get greener on the other side of something, right? 
Whatever that is. Yeah. And when I, when I move to this new location, I'll have new relationships and life is going to get greener. When I get my new house, I'll be able to create my own space taker and life's going to get greener. I just need a new job. I just need a new something. I just need something new on this side of the fence. Life is going to get greener. But a life surrendered to Jesus is a long journey of spiritual maturity. Because how many of you know you get to the other side of the fence and yeah, it might be greener for a season, but then it's back to the same old issues. It's back to the same old lifestyle. But a life surrendered to Jesus is a long journey of spiritual maturity. God is faithful in the desert places of our lives. And if we surrender each season to him, nothing of our life will go to waste. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16. Let me give you some, some background. The nation of Israel is God's chosen people. God has selected the nation of Israel out of all nations. Back in the book of Genesis, when he, told, when he talked to Abraham, he told Abraham that his descendants would be his treasured possession. And so uh, God's people, they've, uh, they've been delivered from Egypt. They were enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years. And now they're out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land. And it's interesting if you look at Israel's exodus journey, they don't take a direct route to the promised land. Instead, they make a detour to Mount Sinai. So let's put this map up here, the first map that we have. Here's the route that they took. Instead of going, they need to go straight across to the corner of the screen. But instead, they go south all the way down here to Mount Sinai. And remember, this isn't a group of people that are lost in the wilderness. They are being led by a pillar of fire. God is actually taking his people where he wants him to go. And there's a significant thing that God wants to do at Sinai that we talked about last week. It was at Mount Sinai that God spoke to the people and invited them into his presence, to experience his presence. But let's say, for instance, instead of Israel following the fire, they used Google Maps. They had Google Maps. This is where, this is the route they would have taken if they were using Google Maps. Let's put the next map up there. Here it is, straight across. It's about a 92-hour walk from Egypt to the Promised Land. If they were walking about eight hours per day, it would have taken them roughly 11 or 12 days to get to the Promised Land. But they don't take a direct route. But isn't this how we like to get to places in life, from point A to point B, Right? I used to ask my wife because I'm super into Marvel movies. I'm a, I'm a superhero fan. And I like watching Marvel movies. And um, I asked my wife at the beginning. This was an important question for me when we were dating. I asked her, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And you know what she said? She said, I would want the ability to teleport, to be able to blink and open up my eyes, and suddenly I'm in Hawaii. I don't have a six-hour flight. I don't have... I don't have security to go through. I don't have to drive to the airport. I'm just there. This is the way that we like to get to places in life, point A to point B, as the crow flies. But God has different plans for your life. He had different plans for Israel. See, God isn't as concerned about getting you to your destination as he is about who you've become when you get there. God is turning you into something. He's turning you into somebody. It's, it's someone who looks a lot like Jesus. He's turning you into someone who approaches his presence to experience him. 
Someone who fully relies on God's protection and his provision. Someone who follows wherever he leads. Someone whose life produces the fruits of the Holy Spirit and who walks in the power of the Spirit. This is who God wants to turn you into. He's shaping you into somebody. He's less concerned about when you get there or how you get there. And he's more concerned about who you are when you get there. He's preparing you. That's what the desert season is for. It's a place of preparation. It's a place of of waiting on God. I talked about last week. How many are the desert places in our life for those moments where we feel like we're waiting for the next best thing to happen? Where we feel dry and empty, where our spirit feels thirsty, like there's more. We know there's more, but but we don't know how to get it. And God, we're going to see today that God allows those seasons to happen, to take place in us, because he's making us hungry for his presence. He's making us thirsty for him. He's having us rely on him more heavily. He's doing all of it on purpose. He's turning you into somebody. So what was God teaching Israel in the desert? What kind of people were they becoming? And what did God do in Israel's journey that he wants to do in your journey? What did God do in the story that we're going to read now that he wants to do today in your journey? So let's read Exodus 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to skip to verse 13. It says this. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. This word in the Hebrew is actually an onomatopoeia. If you say this word in Hebrew, it actually sounds like grumbling. Uh, Where was I? Verse 3. The Israelites said to them, I love this, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. We sat around pots there, pots of meat, and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people are going to going. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them. And see whether they will follow my instructions. And on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And that is because on the seventh day, Israel rested. So God instructed them to gather twice as much on the sixth day so that the seventh day could be a day of rest. And God did not rain down manna on the seventh day. Verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? That is actually the word manna literally means what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. This is important. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Verse 21, each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. 
What was God teaching the people in this provision of manna in the desert? I think that God was teaching the people three things. Um, at least these are three, three things that God was teaching them. Maybe there's more, I'm sure. But the first thing that I believe that God was teaching Egypt, or excuse me, he was teaching Israel was this. Number one, Egypt is the enemy. Egypt is the enemy. Verse three tells us that the people, they were complainers. They were grumblers and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They complained because although Egypt was the oppressor, it was also the provider. Let me say that again. Although Egypt was the oppressor, it was also the provider. And isn't that how sin works in our life? Isn't that how addiction works in our life? It slowly kills us, but at the same time, our immediate needs feel met. I get to satisfy my immediate desires and ignore the fact that it's my enemy, that it's trying to kill me. Think of the sins that we find ourselves in today. Think of your life. All sin first disguises itself as a friend who wants us to be happy, who wants us to feel pleasure, who wants us to get what our body is craving. But in reality, it is a slave driver. It's an oppressor. Oftentimes, it's easier to stay enslaved and claim ignorance is bliss than it is to face my enemy. And that's what the Israelites wanted. Let us go back to Egypt. At least we had pots of meat there. Yeah, we were slaves. Yeah, we were oppressed. Yeah, life was miserable, but at least we weren't going to starve. God brought people into the desert to teach them that God's people don't rely on what others rely on. The things of the past won't satisfy you anymore. They're actually killing you. The things that sin has to offer, the things that feel good in the moment, is actually killing you. God is teaching his people that Egypt is the enemy. It's not your friend. It's not your provider. It's not there to make you feel good. It's there to enslave you. And I'm bringing you out of Egypt. But how many of you know that when God brought the people out of Egypt, he had to bring Egypt out of the people? Egypt was still this desire in their heart. They, had, they didn't know anything else but to be slaves. They didn't know what it looked like to be children of God. They just knew what it looked like to be slaves. And God was teaching them, you're not slaves any longer. You are children. You are my treasured possession. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You are mine. I've chosen you. But he had to use this desert season to help transform their minds. Let me ask this morning. What do you rely on instead of God? Where do you find your security? Do you find security in money or in your relationships? God wants to be your security. Where do you find pleasure? Is it in shopping? Is it in eating? Is it in pornography? Is it in other addiction? God wants you to experience his pleasure. Because everything else is a counterfeit. Everything else is just a fake of the real pleasure that God can give you. When we place our security in our relationships, in our money, when our security comes from that, what happens when the bank account runs dry? We don't have security anymore, do we? We don't have peace. When our marriages fall apart, what happens to our peace? What happens to our security? 
it falls apart. But when your security is placed in God and your pleasure is placed in God, your joy is placed in God, when everything else falls apart, you can still stand with confidence saying, I have true peace. I have true joy. I have the spirit living inside of me, and God is my security. He is everything that I need. I don't get, I don't get what I need from anywhere else. It's my enemy. I get it from God. God is teaching his people that Egypt is the enemy. And I believe he wants to teach us today that the things that bring you temporary pleasure, things that sometimes we rely on to cope with stress, to cope with pain, to cope with sorrow, those things are not your friend. They're counterfeits to what God has to offer. The second thing that God was teaching his people in the desert is to trust that God is a good provider. He is a good provider. The purpose of the manna provision was to help the Israelites know the Lord as a good provider. Slavery had been a hard experience. God had been silent during their 400 years of oppression. Imagine growing up in a generation where your parents They never received a word from the Lord, and now you're alive, and and you haven't heard the voice of the Lord. And they tell you that you're God's chosen people. They tell you about the promise that he gave to Abraham, that you're supposed to go to the promised land. But where is God? God is a distant, cruel God who likes to see me enslaved. He likes to punish me. This is the mindset that these, these Israelites are living with. This is their perception of God. And many of us know how the darkness of another sin can skew our understanding of God's character. They needed time to get to know God on a deeper level. And the desert season was an intimate time for the Lord to know his people. So that they would know him. No taskmasters. No distractions of keeping up with daily chores. No demanding bills to pay. Just simple experiences of trust and provision. Trust and and provision. God was saying, I want to be everything for you in this season. I want to show you who I really am. I want to show you how valuable you are to me. I want to show you that I'm a good provider. I want to get rid of the old perception of the old understanding of who I am. I'm going to get that out of here. I'm going to leave it in the desert. I'm going to let it die in the desert. We're not going to bring it into the promised land. Psalm 81 says this, I removed the burden from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. In your distress, you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of a thundercloud. That's the Mount Sinai experience we talked about last week. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. <clears throat> when God made, made water come out from a rock. Hear me, my people, and I will warn you if You would only listen to me, Israel. You shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not worship any other God than me. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And then he says this. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But you would be fed. This is verse 16 of Psalm 81. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat. With honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Honey was a luxury In ancient times. And it's symbolic of God's abundance. His fruitfulness. And he was telling his people that I am more than enough. That's what honey symbolized. It's this I am abundantly good. I am more than enough. All you have to do is open your mouth and I will fill it. I want to care for you. As as a mother cares for her infant. I want to provide for you. When I read this 
Psalm 81, I immediately thought of the spring of 2020 when we were still living in Newburgh and we had baby robins hatching in our backyard. This uh, mother robin came and laid a nest on top of our six-foot ladder. And uh, it was right outside our back door. And we could just look out the window and we could see the eggs. that They started to hatch and they turned into baby birds. And we watched as they grew feathers and they started learning how to fly. And eventually they all started learning how to fly and they leapt out of the nest. But our fence was so high that one of the baby birds couldn't fly up past our fence. And, and it was stuck in our backyard. It was kind of flying around our backyard trying to figure out how to get out. And I didn't see the mama bird and I got concerned. So this is what I did. Now, obviously, I was supposed to put the worm in my mouth and chew it up a bit and then give it to the bird. Because it's so used to its mom chewing the worm for it and regurgitating it in his mouth. But look at him open wide his mouth. I thought of this when I read this scripture and watching this baby bird open its mouth reminded me of how dependent we are on our parents when we're young. My one year old Leo, he needs us for everything. He needs us to help him eat. He needs us to get him dressed. He needs us to help him go to sleep. He can't do that on his own. He needs us to change his diaper. We're completely reliant on our parents when we are young. And God wanted to be that for Israel. Not because he's a micromanager or he's controlling, but because Israel had struggled for 400 years. And now God wanted to give the people rest from their struggle. He wanted to provide their every need. He wanted to be that. For them. I'm going to be your provider, whatever you need. In fact, Deuteronomy says that the clothes on their back and the sandals on their feet never wore out while they were through the desert, that God kept their clothes good. God provided for them fully when they were in the wilderness. We stress a lot about things that, that we don't have, things that we want, and we work so hard to figure out ways to get those things without help from anyone else. Maybe Maybe you don't earn much, and and just getting food on the table is stressful enough. It's a struggle. God wants to show you that he is a good provider. Perhaps you earn more, but you still find yourself discontent and racing for the next thing, trying to get the next thing. God wants to show you that he's more than enough, that you don't need anything else, that you can be content in the person of God, that he is a good provider. He will meet all of your needs. How do we practically learn to trust God in these areas. What is, what is one thing, this is one thing that I believe the Bible makes clear, that we do to show God that we trust that he is our provider. And that is that we return the tithe to God. The Bible makes it clear the one thing that we do to actively place our trust in God is to return the tithe. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, it says this. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then he says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. The word tithe means tenth. That's what the word means. And in ancient times, food and livestock, it was the currency of the time. It was what people had to trade and purchase items. And nowadays, most people don't survive on what they plant in their backyard garden. Or the cattle that's in their field. But they rely on money. We rely on money. Money is how we take care of ourselves. And throughout all of scripture, 
This is the only place, the only place in Scripture where God gives people permission to test him in this area. Typically, it's God that does the testing in the Bible. But God is challenging people to outgive him. See if you can outgive me. See if you can be a better provider than me. God wants us to test him in this area. It's impossible to outgive God. It's impossible. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. He said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I think to myself of, of uh, when, I was, when I was younger, we'd go to Old Country Buffet. Anybody remember this place? And I'd grab a cup and I'd go to the soft serve ice cream machine and I would pour ice cream into my cup and to get all the air bubbles out, I'd smack it on the table a few times and I, I want to make sure I get as much ice cream in that cup as possible. And this is what Jesus is referring to when it comes to how we, how we give and how we, how we receive from God. The measure that you give, it will be given to you. If you give in a way that's not wholehearted, if you give in a way that's only convenient to you at a time, that is the measure that will be returned to you. But if you give in a way that when you put your gift together, you pack it down and you shake it and you press it, you get as much in there and you want to be an abundant giver. You want to be a generous giver. If you give in that way, the Bible says that is the measure that it will be returned to you. Test him in this is what he says. Why do you think God asks for a tenth of what we have? First of all, God doesn't want a tenth of what you have. He wants all of what you have. But he'll settle for a tenth. <laughs> Why do you think God asks for a tenth? Why is it important for a follower of Jesus to be a giver, to be generous? Do you think that God needs our money? No, God doesn't need our money. Because generosity, I said this before, is not something that God wants from you. It's something he wants for you, something he wants you to experience. He wants to teach his people that he alone is the provider. And everything you have is a result of the grace of God, and it doesn't belong to you. You are a steward of your finances. It doesn't belong to you. It's not your money. It's God's money. You are a steward of your skills. God gave you those skills. They're not your skills. They're God's skills. But you steward them wisely. You're a, a steward of your time. We don't control how long we live. We don't control the time that we have. It's God's time that he's given to us. We are simply stewards of the time that we have. We are stewards of our relationships. Your children are God's gift for you to steward. They're not yours. They don't belong to you. They're God's kids. They're God's children. And you are called to steward your children in a way that pleases God. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. That's the reason that he blessed Israel. He blessed Israel so that the nations would look at Israel and see there's something different about that community. There's, there's a protection that they have. There's an anointing that they have. There's a power that they have. There is an abundance that they have. There's a blessing on that nation. God blessed the, the, the nation of Israel so that everyone else could look at that nation and go, I want what they have. I don't know what it is, but I want it. That's why God blesses us. God blesses us so we can be a blessing to others. Did you know that Jesus taught more about money during his time on earth than he did about heaven and hell combined? 
Jesus knew that there is a direct relationship between our hearts and our wallet. There is a direct relationship. Matthew 6 says this, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Only one of those will be your provider. Who do you trust to be your provider? Are your actions serving God, or are they serving the pursuit of money? And when we learn to trust that God is a good provider and that he meets all of my needs, we experience a freedom of not being reliant on ourselves, but depending fully on an infinite God with infinite resources. I think a lot of us have a 13-foot view of God. God's big. God's big, but, you know, it's not infinite. God wants to blow wide the cap. He wants to take off the lid and show you that he is infinite, with infinite resources, that there is no limit to God. There is no limit to his goodness. There is no limit to his provision. There is no limit to God. He wants to show you that. Seeing God as a provider was so important to Jesus that he actually included it into his teaching on prayer. When the disciples asked him in Matthew chapter 6 to teach us how to pray, Jesus said this. He said, this then is how you should pray. Give us today our daily bread. It's a reference to Exodus 16, when God gave them daily manna in the desert. Give us today our daily bread. God, I trust that you are my daily provider, that everything I need for today is coming from you. Christina and I, we didn't tithe at the beginning of our marriage. We, we tipped. We, we tipped by giving $20 here and there when it was convenient. And my pastor came to me. And he challenged me to test God in my giving. He said that 90% of my money with God's blessing was better than 100% without. That's what he told me. And I remember feeling offended at first. Like, don't, don't tell me how to spend my money, man. Like, I just, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this at my own pace. Like, give me space. But he challenged me in this area. And so even though we were young, we were saving for a house, we only had one beater car to share, we began... To tithe on our gross income, was, which was something new for both of us. And it was the first thing to leave our bank account after we got paid. And, and after a couple months of this, uh, someone at the church, at our church in Newburgh, approached me. I've told this story before, so if this sounds familiar, here it is again. Uh, someone at our church approached me with a, an envelope that had $500 cash from an anonymous person who wanted to bless us. And uh, about a week later, it's Easter Sunday. And I get done with our service at church, and I go back to the office to hop in my car. I'm loading all the stuff, my guitar and everything into the car. And I go to start the car, and it's not starting. Nothing's starting. And I'm, I t- I'll pop up in the hood. I can't figure it out. And so I end up needing to call a tow truck to come grab the car, bring it to a mechanic. And uh, I went to the mechanic, and, and he, uh, he did the work on the car. And I came back a few days later to pick up the car. And after 
after the, uh, the combined total, after having the tow truck come and pick up the car, and after having the mechanic work on the car and repair the car, guess what the total of the cost was? It was $499. $499. And the Lord spoke to my heart in that moment because I still had the $500 cash in my wallet. And he, he told me the amount. I pulled out the $500 cash, and I was like, here you go. And he's like, here's a dollar and change. And as he's giving me the dollar back, I heard the Lord speak to my heart. He said, you can trust that I'm a good provider and that I will bless with change to spare. That I am more than enough. My wife and I, we've been tithing ever since. And we believe that God, we, 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 we tithe because we can see what it's doing in our hearts. We can see how it's changing us into a people that want to meet the needs of others. We've become more open-handed. We've become more generous people. We want to bless others. And it's something that God wants to do in the life of every one of his followers. Not because he needs your money. He doesn't need your money. But because he wants to change you. He wants to turn you into a generous person who wants to bless others so that you can be a blessing Whenever God provides for us, it's meant to be a tangible revelation of his character. We are going to be wise to regularly consider all of his many provisions and reflect on the relationship that he's building between us. When he provides, you can see he's doing something. He's building a relationship. So Egypt is the enemy was the first lesson. God, trust that God is a good provider was the second lesson. And the third thing he was teaching them was that it's about more than bread. It's about more than bread. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3 says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Get this. He humbled you. And he let you be hungry. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. He let you be hungry. What? That's not currently in my theology of God. We know... That because God is a good provider, he's going to meet our practical needs by giving us food and water and clothing. But God wants us to understand something greater, that he is all we need, that God is all we need. Just like he allowed Israel to be hungry in the desert, God wants your spirit to hunger for his word, for his presence. When we read in the old when we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, we can now understand that manna from heaven was an allusion to the person of Jesus. That it was a foreshadow of the bread from heaven that God would give his people, and that's the person of Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus said this, The people asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm going to invite Mary to come up and play as we close. We know that Jesus isn't talking about physical hunger or physical thirst. Because Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, as he's describing all of the things that he went through, he, he tells the church in Corinth that he knows what it's like to experience hunger, to experience thirst, to experience suffering. He knows what that's like. Instead, Jesus is talking about satisfying a hunger and a thirst that's inside every person. We're born into this world with desires and spiritual cravings that only Jesus can satisfy. The desire to belong. Maybe you feel alone. You feel isolated. You feel like there's nobody who understands you. You feel like you don't belong. It's a desire. It's a craving that's inside of our spirit. It's the desire to feel accepted for who I am. The desire to live for something that's greater than myself. We all have this desire. We want our lives to matter. We want to leave something, a legacy for some, somebody to follow after. The deep desire to know my purpose and to have a relationship with my creator. These are deep desires that every human being is born with. And Jesus shows up and he says, I am that which will satisfy those cravings. I am the person that will meet all of those needs and more. You want to belong? Come to me, and you'll know that you belong to me. You want to feel accepted? Come to me, because I accepted you while you were still a sinner, and I died for you so that we can have a relationship. You want to leave an impact in the world? You want your life to have purpose? Come to me, and I'll fill you with the Holy Spirit, and I'll give you a mission and a call on your life that is greater than yourself. And you'll know that the world was changed because of what I did through your life after you surrendered it to me. You want to have a relationship with your creator? Come to me because I am the only way to the Father. I'm the only one who can mediate this relationship. Jesus says, come to me. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, if you're weary and you're tired and you need somebody to sustain you, to fill you up, Jesus says, I'll be that person for you. I am a good provider. Jesus invites all of us to come into those desert places, to embrace those desert places so that he can show us that God provides in the desert, that he is a provider in the desert places of our hearts. If your spirit is hungry, the answer is Jesus. You can find true contentment and satisfaction in the person of Jesus. Would you stand with me? Next Sunday after church, we're going to be doing our grow class. And grow class is for people who maybe have said yes to Jesus for the first time. It's also for people who want to understand a little bit of the heart behind our church, but... 
I want to invite you in this place. If before we before we go any farther, I want to pray over you and I want to invite you into something. And, and if this prayer is for you, I'm going to invite you to come to grow class next Sunday so that we can continue the conversation. I'm not about uh, being a pastor of a church or leading a church where, you know, the only encounter that they have with Jesus is that hand raise that one Sunday morning. But we're on a journey of discipleship. We need community. We need connection. And so Grow Class is a place where I want to connect with you. But I want to have everybody in the room bow your head, close your eyes. And I want to invite you into this relationship with Jesus if if you haven't had this yet. Maybe you're here today and you didn't know how hungry you were until you came here. You didn't know how thirsty you were, how tired you were until you came here. And Jesus began to reveal to you the truth. That there is an insatiable desire inside of you for more. And that's the person of Jesus. He's calling out to you. Maybe you're here and your heart is beginning to burn right now. Your heart's beating a little bit faster. The Lord is calling you into a relationship with him. And I want to invite you, if you're here and you've never said, Jesus, I want you to be my everything. If you've never said that prayer, if you've never given your life to Jesus, would you just raise your hand right now so I can pray with you? I want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus. Raise it high so I can see it. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you for every person in this room. God, I thank you for the desert places of our lives. Even though they're hard sometimes and they feel like we're wandering alone, you're doing something. You're preparing us. You're turning us into somebody. And Lord, we want to be more like you. We want to draw closer to you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be not a people that complain and grumble about where we're at and what we wish would happen, what we wish would be given to us. But Father, make us a thankful people. A a people full of praise, a people full of positive attitudes that can only look at what you did for us and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so grateful to be called the child of God. Turn us into a people of praise, a people of gratitude. Lord, we, we love you. We give you this morning and we bless you. We hope that your heart was ministered to this morning. We, we give you our lives as offerings to you, Jesus. And let us continue to minister to you throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen. God bless you, church. Love you. We'll see you next week.